0: Take your Bible and join me in the 26th book of the New Testament, the book of Jude, a single chapter, as is the book of Philemon, Second John and Third John. And Let me, in preparation for our study this evening, read with you the first four verses and then the verses that we're going to examine this evening at the end of our study, verse 17 through verse 25. Jude, in many ways, ends like it begins with a common theme. And so let's note that. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are, and I'll point out to you in a moment that Jude is very fond of threes. And so there are a number of trios, a number of things that are grouped in packages of threes. So to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And then again, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation ungodly men. You might want to mark that word there because the word ungodly occurs six times in the book of Jude. And so it's a common Reoccurring phrase another phrase. that's very similar that you will see as you work your way through the book is the word or the phrase these men are these and that occurs five times in the book. He's talking about the same group. These men, these individuals who are also the ungodly ones. So 11 times he makes a reference to uh, these particular individuals. So again, uh, these ungodly men. Who turned the grace of our God into lewdness, and they deny the only Lord and our the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse seventeen through verse twenty five, but you beloved Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own. There it is again, ungodly lust. These men are, number one, sensual persons. Number two, they cause divisions. Number three, not having the spirit. In contrast, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And then one of the great uh, doxologies concerning our eternal uh, security. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... If you look on the first page of the notes that you have, Jude, the defender of the faith, that is a good way to summarize what this book is about. If you break that particular statement, defender of the faith, down into thematic emphases, you note that there are four of them there. One, he writes to encourage sound doctrine. Two, to encourage believers to contend, to strive, to fight, to defend for the once for all faith. Three, to warn of the danger of false teachers. And four, to assure believers of their eternal security in Christ. The authors we're going to see is a man by the name of Jude. The Hebrew is Judah. Interestingly, the Greek is Judas. Hence, it is not surprising that he has been known historically throughout the church by the shortened form of Jude. We know from other scriptures that he was the full brother of James, the half-brother Of Jesus. Date of writing somewhere between AD 65 and AD 90. The uh, crucial issue issue is what is its relationship to 2 Peter? And in particular, as we saw when we looked at 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, my judgment is it was probably written sometime after AD 70. And I'll make some comments about that in just a moment. Uh, Several points of interest that we'll note quickly. One, Jude and 2 Peter 2 are very similar. Two, Jude quotes non-biblical sources, which has been a problem for some people and indeed caused some people to question early in the church's history whether or not Jude should even be in our New Testament. Three, Jude is confronting an early Gnostic type apostasy that fostered immorality. In this regard, it has some things in common with the epistles of John, some things in common with uh, the pastorals, some things in common with Colossians, perhaps even some things in common with uh, First Corinthians, but certainly those other books. Fourthly Jude is a tough book it deals with several mysterious and very difficult topics and you'll notice I'm not going to cover those tonight they're right in the middle we'll study those some other time. Fifthly, Jude cites masterfully and extensively the Old Testament, and I will show you in a moment at least seven clear citations of examples in the Old Testament. And then as we said a moment ago, Jude is very fond of grouping things in threes. If you look on page two, I provided for you the structural chart of the book that shows you just how the book is laid out in terms of having a greeting and a doxology at the end, appeals at the early part and the latter part, and then in the middle of the book, an extensive uh, explanation of the character of the false teachers using again and again uh, examples from the Old Testament. And again, as we noted a moment ago, Second Peter is a book that has many similarities to the book of Jude. In my judgment, Second Peter tells us false teachers are coming. Jude tells us false teachers are here. Hence, that is why I think the book of Jude was written after 2 Peter and therefore probably in the 70s, maybe even in the 80s, possibly, but no more than the early 90s of the first century. Look at page three, then, and we'll walk through our background material very quickly. The author again is the book of Jude, who identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, verse one. The determination of his identity then rests principally upon the process of elimination. The half-brothers of Jesus are mentioned in both Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. And among those named are both James and Jude. James then was the half-brother of the Lord who is to be distinguished from both the James who is the son of Zebedee and the James who is the son of Alphaeus. Both of those James were disciples. They were part of the twelve. James, the half-brother of our Lord, was an unbeliever during the ministry of our Savior, did not become a believer until after the resurrection. And then as I note there, he rose to a prominent position in the leadership in the church at Jerusalem. Jude, on the other hand, was not as widely known as James, and he does not use in this book an apostolic title, nor is he ever referred to anywhere else as an apostle. He simply, and I would even add humbly, identifies himself as the bond servant or slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of the well-known James. And therefore the conclusion is that this Judas or this Jude is one of the Lord's half-brothers. And As I said a moment ago, his name is the same as Judah or Judas and his name like theirs means praise. Now, when did he write the book, and from where did he write the book? Well, again, we cannot be certain. People have argued that the place of writing was anywhere from Alexandria to Rome. Again, I noted that there's this close relationship to Second Peter 2, because I believe that Peter warned of the coming of false teachers. Jude says they are here. Then I think a date after A.D. 70 is most reasonable, somewhere between A.D. 75 and 90, and that's what that paragraph there unravels and unfolds for you. Drop down to number three, the theme, the warning against false teachers. You know it's very interesting. If it were not for false teaching, we would probably only have half of our New Testament. If you think about it, many, 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 many of the books of the New Testament were written specifically because of the danger of False teaching. In fact, those of you that have studied church history know that the formation of our New Testament in terms of its 27 books also was given a shot in the arm because of the presence of false teaching, the presence of false uh, documents, false gospels, false acts, false epistles that were not authentic. They had not been written by apostles or close associates of an apostle. So again, false teaching, though, in one sense, our enemy has also been our friend in terms of what it produced in the New Testament writings and their being gathered together. But when it comes to Jude, there is no obscurity in Jude's purpose. He wishes to discuss facets of salvation. But the threat of subversive teachers compelled him to write and exhort his readers, you contend earnestly for, and the word thee should be emphasized, the faith. He's not talking about contend for faith. He is arguing that you should contend for the faith. What is the correct belief about the person and work of Jesus Christ? What is the correct belief about the doctrine of salvation? What is the correct belief about the doctrine of God? And so on. He's very interested that you understand the faith, the body of doctrine embraced and believed by the apostolic church. Indeed, his entire epistle is an assessment of false teachers and a strong warning to the recipients. The false teachers reject Christ's authority, but Jude says, in contrast, he is Lord both now and forever. Therefore, you should shun the false teachers and you should follow the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and follow the teaching of those who were with the Lord Jesus Christ as well. I also noted for you a moment ago that Jude uses extensively the Old Testament, citing instances related to Israel Uh, The fall of angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, Korah, and Enoch. And so I give you the instances where he cites these as well as the particular individuals mentioned as well. Also, Jude, if you analyze the book from verse 1 through verse 25, could be summarized or could be analyzed, maybe is a better way of saying it, around seven great challenges that he puts before uh, the audience to whom he is writing. Number one... Earnestly contend for the faith. Number two, remember the teachings and warnings of the apostles. Number three, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Number four, pray in the Holy Spirit. Number five, keep yourselves in the love of God. Number six, look for the mercy of the Lord to bring to you eternal life. And number seven, show mercy to Christians who are doubting. Snatch unbelievers from the fire and cautiously show mercy to the corrupt. Now, before you turn, notice. I do not deal with those seven commands in any area from verse 4 through verse 16. Very interestingly, verses 4 through 16 are the illustrations. The command 1 Is found on the front end at verse 3, and Jude basically backloads all of his commands. And as I'll point out in just a moment, again, very interestingly, if you analyze the original Greek text, there's not a single imperative, not a single word of command in the first 16 verses. But in verse 17 through verse 23, there are five. And so Jude, in essence, like a good lawyer, says, here's what you need to do. Here is the evidence for what you, uh, why I make that uh, 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 request of you. And then bam, 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 bam. After giving the evidence, he says, all right, then you must, if this is true, if this is so. Then you must do all of these things, and in rapid-fire succession, he gives you five imperatives in verse 17 through verse 23. And in essence, I've unraveled them for you there in Numbers 2 through number 7, though actually there's six points there, and I'll show you how that works itself out also in just a minute. Now, we do need to deal with this one issue because it is raised uh, repeatedly by New Testament scholars, and the first time people come across this, sometimes they just kind of have, as we would say... Here in the South, the hissy fit, and they don't know what to do with it. So let me explain to you. How do we, page five, how should we respond when biblical authors like Jude, for example, cite or quote from a non-biblical source? Now, by analogy, though, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. When I preach, uh, when Brother Bill preaches, when others fill this pulpit uh, from our seminary or from our church or from whatever. It is often the case that in our preaching, we might use an illustration from a non-biblical source. Why well, I quote all the time from Newsweek, Time, uh, U.S. News and World Report, and given Newsweek's record over the last few days with the Quran in Guantanamo, who would believe half of what they write? Of course, I don't believe half of what they write anyway. But uh, be that as it may, every now and then I get really frisky, and I quote from the News and Observer. And I only believe about 1% of the stuff in that thing. And so, you know, when I quote from that thing, uh, you would be a fool to think that I am endorsing the whole thing. I mean, actually, I have worked very diligently to find the one thing I actually think I can trust. And so I will use that from time to time. Now, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, but just barely, uh, because I'm not too impressed with the uh, news and observer. And uh, I'm happy for you to tell them I'm not impressed. I, I told them myself I'm not impressed. So I'm not talking behind their back. My point is simply this. If I cite it as something I believe to be true, that in no way says I believe everything they write is true. And so even if and they do, as I'm going to show you, even if the biblical authors cite non-biblical sources, that in no way necessitates an endorsement of the totality of the thing They are citing that's just very poor thinking and logic to argue in that kind of a way. So what can we say about this issue of non-biblical sources? Well, number one, recognize it does occur. The fact of the matter is, in Jude 9, he is quoting from an ancient book called The Assumption of Moses. And in Jude 14, he is quoting a book called The Book of Enoch. Now, we are virtually certain that Moses did not write The Assumption of Moses. Moses. And we are certain that Enoch did not write the book of Enoch. And so we recognize that these books are not authentic in terms of the alleged author. Still, that does not mean everything inside of them is false. Furthermore, Jesus, Stephen and Paul also quote from time to time non-biblical sources as well. So the fact of the matter is there are a number of occasions where the biblical authors will do this. Number two. Recognize that all truth is God's truth wherever it is found. So if you find truth in a magazine, a newspaper, on the Internet or in an ancient source, if it's true, ultimately the author of all truth is the God of truth. Number three, and make sure you read it carefully. Recognize that the 66 books of the Bible, though true, do not contain all truth. Say, wait a minute. Oh, no, wait a minute. Nothing. In a base 10 mathematical system, 2 plus 2 will always equal what? 4. Is that statement found anywhere in the Bible? No. Is it a true statement? Yes. So there are true statements that are outside the canonical scriptures. But what is in the scriptures is always true. So don't make a error and get sucked into an indefensible position in this particular context. Number 4. The Holy Spirit may, and I would argue, did direct the biblical writers to a variety of sources for the creation of their books. Uh, in fact, we don't argue like uh, Joseph Smith that uh, two angels appeared and basically poured the Book of Mormon into his head. Uh, the closest thing we will come to anything like that is all is in one instance... And that is where Moses received what? The Ten Commandments. So that's about the only time we argue that something came in that kind of almost dictation kind of way from God. We've always argued that the Bible teaches that the Bible is the word of God written in the words of men. And that God used the personalities and the styles and the interest of the biblical writers. But he protected them and guided them in such a way that everything they wrote was true. But he did not negate, override, or crush Their individuality, their personality, their particular way of writing, and so on. Number five, to cite or quote a part of a non-biblical source does not demand that one believe all of that source is correct or that it is inspired. Number six, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the early church then came to recognize and compile the books of the Bible which truly belong. In other words, the 66 books of the Bible belong not... Because the early church said that they belonged, but rather they belong and the early church recognized that this was indeed the case. And the order in which that is stated is both crucial and essential. Now, what I've also done for you in this particular study, because it is a more difficult book, is on page six, uh, page seven. Uh, I have given you kind of a running uh Exposition or outline of the 25 verses also on page 8 you have a an outline of the entire book Uh, all 25 verses built around five major ideas. Number one, Jude reminding us of the delights of the Christian faith, verse 1 and 2. Secondly, Jude reminding us of the dangers to Christianity, which is the bulk of the book in terms of the amount of material, the amount of space, verses 3 through 16, where he talks about a description of false teachers, their destruction, their deeds, their deceit, their destiny, and also what they delight in. And then the three things we're going to unfold tonight quickly is Jude reminds us of the defenses of the Christian faith. Jude reminds us of the disciplines of the Christian faith. And then finally, Jude reminds us of the doxology or praise of the Christian faith as well. Page nine. You see those three points developed in some detail. Let's quickly walk through those. I'll go ahead and tell you one last thing that you have that I will not uh, read or sing to you. I have a very good friend. Uh, his name is Dr. William Couture. He is now the uh, uh, uh professor of family ministry at Southern Seminary. He is also a former OBGYN, and I think working with women that intently all those years kind of did something to his brain. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I do not mean that. Don't you take that seriously. If you do, shame on you. Now, I I must tell you, this is just a quick aside. A few years ago, uh, I was on a radio program, and uh, we were doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of, um, of, of Revelation, And I don't know what was in me that day. It must have been insanity, but I was in a rather frisky mood. And so we came to the text where I believe it's in uh, uh, Revelation 11, where it says, and uh, there was silence in heaven for space of one half hour. And my friend across the table, it was a dialogical Bible study, said, Danny, what do you think is the significance of that uh, half hour of silence in heaven? I said, oh, that's easy, David. That is clear proof. That there are no women in heaven, because no woman can be quiet for half an hour. Well, we laughed and cut up. Son, one week later, I got a letter that when I took hold of the envelope, it sizzled my hands. And I opened that letter, and I will tell you what, I got dressed down like I have never been dressed down probably in my entire life. I mean, this lady writes, she said, I want you to know that up until last week, I respected you as a wonderful and faithful Bible teacher, but no more. You are a condescending smart aleck. You are a male chauvinist scumbag dog pig. And those were the nicer things she said. I mean, she just flat wore me out. Thankfully. She signed her name and her envelope had a return address. So I wrote her back and I, this was not a time to be cute. I wrote back in sackcloth and ashes. I groveled. I mean, I basically said to her, I am lower than a slug. I am the scummest of all scum dogs. I am not worth to be spit at. Forgive me. I am sorry. Flagellate me. Flog me. Do whatever it takes. I am so very, very sorry. Please forgive me for being an idiot. Well, she writes me again. And now she says, you've made me feel bad. You are so repentant, I now feel like I, and I'm like, oh my goodness, please, you know, just don't keep doing this. So I just wrote her back and I said, you have nothing to apologize for. I was the one who acted like a fool. If you will forgive me, I easily forgive you and we'll move on. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding when I make a statement like that. But what I did want to say to you, this man is creative. And so this OBGYN, he was still an OBGYN back then, studied through Jude one time and he wrote a rap song to it. And actually, at a Sunday night church training, we would not do it in the regular worship service, but in a church training hour, he actually found a, 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 put music to it, and he and three or four guys got up and did Jude the Heavy and Holy Dude. And it was pretty impressive. And so I just thought, you know, I was going through my material on Jude. I, I said, you know, I haven't looked at that in a long, long time. But I want to tell you what, that is a pretty creative rap song, That's pretty doggone accurate to the text as you walk your way from verse 1 through verse 25. And so I just thought you might find that fun. I know if you got teenagers, they would think it's hilarious. So that's just in there for free. I'm not going to read it. I'm for sure not going to sing it. Now we'll go back to page 9. And very quickly, I will show you the keys to victory in days of deception that Jude gives you and Jude gives me. And it's built around three major ideas. Number one. You need to remember the defenses of Christianity. The key word here is remember. Now, what is it that we need to remember? Two things. Number one, that false teachers, that apostates are predicted. Don't be surprised when they show up. Verse 17. But you, beloved, and here is the first imperative in the book of Jude. Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, you can go back and find the words of John, the epistles of John, <clears throat> the words of Peter, second Peter, the words of Paul in the pastorals, the words of Paul in Colossians and other places where they warned us about the danger of faults. So when false teachers show up, when false teachers try to infiltrate a church, don't be surprised. Be ready. After all, Jude told you, the apostles warned you that they were going to come. So first of all, they are predicted. Secondly, remember what they practice, because this will help you recognize them when they show up, because at first they may look like they're on our side. At first, they may look like they believe the book, but Jude says, just watch them very carefully. And he notes four things about them there. First of all, he talks about the fact that they are scoffers. Verse 18, they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who walk, how? According to their own ungodly lust. Mockers, people who scoff at biblical truth. People who, as we saw in Second Peter, laugh about his coming. When is he coming again? It's been a long time. Hasn't showed up for a while. Thought he was coming back soon, and they scoff, they mock, they ridicule, they scorn the plain, clear. Teaching of Scripture. Usually, as I said today in our chapel messages, they have a Jesus Plus program, a Salvation Plus program. They're always adding something more to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are good, but not good enough. We have a higher teaching, a more enlightened view, and therefore we actually provide something better. And they scoff at the basic elemental Teachings of the Word of God as it centers and focuses upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly he says, they are separatists. These are sensual persons who cause divisions. They separate. They are, they are sensual persons, people of the flesh, people of the world. In fact, one translation says you could say these are worldly persons. In other words, they do not operate on a spiritual plane. They separate and operate on a worldly or sensual plane. Again, I don't want to get into name calling, so I'm not going to do it tonight i to be nice and sweet. But you just look at some of the stuff that you see on TBN. You just look at some of the stuff you see in religious programming and you look at their lifestyles, which is what he's telling us to do. You look at their priorities you look at how they conduct themselves, and it becomes very clear that actually gold is their God rather than God being their God. And they are driven by the material. They're driven by the central. It is not by accident that unbridled immorality runs rampant through that particular vein of, quote, the religious world. It is not by accident at all. Therefore, they are those who walk, you already told you in verse 18, according to their own ungodly lust. Uh, they, are, they are in slavery to themselves, to their own desires. And so they're sensual, worldly. Secondly, he says also that they cause divisions. They, they are uh, divisive. Uh, they break up the fellowship. And then he really drives home the final point and says, and not having the spirit. In other words, Jude is crystal clear. These false teachers are lost. These are not true believers who are a little confused. These are not true believers who have just a little aberrant area over here. These are persons who are lost. These are persons who have never been born again. These are persons who are unregenerate because they have not the spirit, they break up the fellowship, they live on a worldly plane, and they're driven by ungodly lust, and they make fun of, ridicule, and scoff the very simple, basic message of the Bible. So Jude says, remember the defenses of the Christian faith. Remember they were predicted, and remember and watch what they practice. Secondly, You need to recall the disciplines of Christianity. Here the key words are remain and rescue. And the key ideas are edification, building up the body, and evangelism, reaching out and saving those who are lost. Now look at what he says there. First of all, you and I need to remain in God's love. Verse 20. But you beloved. Now let me show you something before I go on. We all know that participles are what are called ing words. And so you need to note that in any language, participles as I-N-G words are always going to be modifying what? A main verb. And it's very good. The English is a very accurate translation here of the Greek. So notice the I-N-G words and then look for the one word that isn't and you'll see the main verb and the main imperative. But you, beloved, here's the first participle, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Here's the second participle, praying In the Holy Spirit, verse 21, keep. No I-N-G there. And by the way, there is your next imperative. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How? Looking. There's another participle. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So what he says here is very simply, you need to keep yourselves or remain in God's love. All right, great. I am to remain in God's love. Question, how do I do that? He just told you by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit and by looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, you can see in my outline, we remain in God's love. How we remain by growing in our salvation, building yourself up in your most holy faith. You remain by Praying in the Spirit, which is the very def, uh, straight straightforward statement there. Praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 20. And then remain by watching for the Son, looking, verse 21, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So you want to stay in God's love, both in terms of your experience and your position, then just keep growing in your salvation. Just keep praying in the Holy Spirit and keep looking for the coming of Jesus. And he says... You'll stay close and intimate with the love of God. Then his second command is, paralleling that, you need to rescue the ungodly sinners or ungodly lost. And interestingly, he basically breaks it down. If you take one particular reading of the original text into three categories, he talks about doubters. He talks about the deceived. And then he talks about the defiled. Verse 22. Now, on some have compassion And the marginal reading that you find in the New King James says, who are doubting. And so I think actually that probably is the better reading. So he says, first of all, when you are doing evangelism, understand that one size does not fit all. People fall in different categories. Some can be classified as those who have legitimate, true, bona fide doubts. So what do you do with them? You have compassion on those who are doubting Making a distinction, recognizing that they don't fall into the class of a hardened individual who is resistant to the gospel. Uh, They don't fall into the class of a false teacher who has been exposed to the truth, but now has rejected it. Here's someone that may genuinely be looking for God. God is dealing with their heart, but they have doubts. They have questions. They're really genuinely trying to grasp hold of this. He says, look, you be compassionate. You be tender and gracious With those particular kind of people, rescue the doubters. But then secondly, rescue the deceived. for he says, you make a distinction. So on others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. So there are others that are deceived. There are others that are near to being gone. And as a result of the deception of sin, as a result of the foolishness of their lifestyle, you have to be more direct. But there's a last category, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. And so he says, if you deal with those who are defiled, you've got to be very proactive. In other words, on one group, you may be gracious and kind. On another group, you've got to be up close, personal and confrontational and say, look, you know what? I have no reason to believe that God is going to give you another opportunity to say yes to Christ. The fact of the matter is you said no, 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 no. And every time I talk to you, you get harder and harder and harder and harder. And the Bible does talk about sending away one's day of grace. The Bible does talk about becoming seared in your conscience. In other words, the Bible almost describes a point of no return. And therefore, you should not, as we learn from Hebrews and from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, today is the day of salvation. And you know, you say, well, Danny, when do you know when to be gentle and when to press the issue? All I can say is you have to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You simply have to trust the Spirit of God to tell you when to ease back, don't bruise the fruit, press the issue, the time for this guy is thumbs up or thumbs down right now. And I can't make that call for you. I believe that's one of those occasions where you simply have to say, Lord, either shut me down or make me wide open. Now, some of us, unfortunately, hardly ever open our mouths unless there's a gun to our head. Others of us, they are in the minority, by the way, will never shut their mouths. You know, they'll just run over anybody and everybody. Well, neither extreme is in touch with the variety of persons that you're going to deal with when you're sharing the gospel. And so you've got to ask the Lord, you know, just watch Jesus, especially in the gospel of John. He's very different with the woman at the well than he is with Nicodemus. Lord, I understand that you're a great teacher of Israel. Unless you're born again, you ain't going to heaven. Wait, 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 wait. You must have missed something. I just told you that you were a great teacher in Israel. Unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. I mean, that's pretty in your face if you ask me. Next chapter, Woman at the Well. Hey, girl, can I have a drink of water? You're talking to me, a Samaritan woman? Yeah, I'd like something to drink. Although, if you knew the water I could give you, you'd ask for me, you'd never thirst again. I would submit that that's not nearly as confrontational. I would submit that's a lot more gentle a lot more gracious, a lot more compassionate. And so he's dealing with one who is a, I won't say he's hardened, but he's a a religious, you know, elite. He's dealing with another who is a outcast woman of ill repute who probably is living with a broken heart and it hasn't had a kind word from a man in many, many years. And that he would say to her, can I just have a drink of water? Opened up the door for him. To bring her to himself. And so again. Jesus himself gives us the pattern for sensitivity. In terms of sharing the gospel. Then finally. We'll just note this quickly. Rejoice in the doxology of Christianity. In terms of God's person and power. Protection. Purpose and praiseworthiness. His person. Now to him. His power. Who is able to keep you from stumbling. His protection. And to present you faultless. Where his purpose before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And in verse twenty five is all to his praise to him alone. Our God and Savior who is alone wise, the glory and majesty, dominion and power win both now and forever. Amen. So be it. And because of this great God, verse twenty five, you have that great salvation. Verse twenty four. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He will present you faultless where before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's why I love what Jerry Vine says. God, by his work on the cross, obtained my salvation by his work for me. Now maintains my salvation from beginning to end. He is the author and the finisher of the faith. I didn't do anything to earn it. I can't do one thing to lose it. Therefore, out of great gratitude and thanksgiving, I will serve him with all of my heart, not being um, taking license because of my security, but being rabid in my devotion to him because of my security. I don't stay faithful to my wife because I have to. I stay faithful to my wife because I love her. I don't have to stay faithful to Jesus because I have to. I stay faithful and serve Jesus because I love him. And because I want to. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jude, who is a defender of the faith. May we learn from the defenses he has given us that we might be faithful, trustworthy, and true, serving you with all of our heart until that day that we are indeed presented faultless in your presence with exceeding joy and great glory. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.